morning, everybody. Good morning. This is the third day of this uh, January 2018 session. Um, so for, for people that are, have attended the retreat, I just wanted to say a couple of words about post-retreat practice. It's really important to, after coming out of close to three days of silence, to being careful about spinning off into lots of things, media, uh, internet, um, talking, indulging in foods and things like that. You can blow it, <laughs> all the progress that's been made in a retreat, very quickly by getting into all that too fast. So just a precaution about that. It's also important to uphold a daily practice, like to continue a daily practice sitting, um, not, not skipping out on that, to really build on all of the, as we say, juriki, which is that building energy from Sashin. <clears throat> and um, before I forget, also, just um, thank you to everybody that helped run the retreat and everybody that participated in it. Um, and it takes uh, a huge effort to get one of these things together. And for people that had to leave early, too, um, drove a long way, uh, some people. Okay, so for today we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to get into... Um, case number eight <clears throat> of the Muman Khan, which is a book of 48 koans in um, our tradition. And for the benefit of people who have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, koans are a practice in our tradition. They're an inquiry practice, a spiritual inquiry. What, what is that? What is it that underlies all of all of it? What's, who are you really? Why were we born and why do we die? Um, Zen takes this, this questioning that we have up, takes it up directly, instead of trying to cover it over with myth and um, belief and faith and all these things, it says uh, the most important energy, probably in our practice, the most important energy is doubt, meaning questioning. What is it that's, uh, what is your life about, really? So koans are these sayings and doings of mostly the Tang dynasty, uh, year 600 to 900, approximately, in China, these Tang dynasty masters, the sayings and doings of the masters. And from the outside, koans look inscrutable. They look absolutely perplexing um, because they are to the intellect, but they demand a greater involvement than the intellect. And so the promise is that if one penetrates a koan, uh, really understands it deeply, then you'll more deeply understand the nature of who you are. Okay, so this is 
uh, and there's and there's different collections of these koans, and this is number eight in the Mumon Khan, the Gateless Gate. It's called Ketchu's Carts. And it goes like this. Master Gaetan said to a monk, Ketchu, who was the first wheel maker in China, made a cart whose wheels had a hundred spokes. If you took off the wheels and removed the axle, then what would it be? That's the end of the case. Muman, the compiler of the book, added commentary and verse to each koan, and this commentary goes like this. If you can immediately see through this, your eye will be like a shooting star, your spiritual activity like a flash of lightning. And then his verse. When a wheel spins rapidly, even a master cannot follow it. It moves in all directions, above and below, north, south, east, and west. So that's all we have to work with. So I can already hear the wheels turning up here. (laughs) What's this all about? So let's investigate it and see what we can get out of this. So in this case, we have a cart. It's it's not just any cart, though. It was made by Ketchu. And Ketchu is the legendary inventor of the wheel in China. It goes back to a legendary dynasty. And we're told that this cart has a hundred spokes, or each wheel has a hundred spokes. So I imagine... um, when you think of a wheel with a hundred spokes, most of us might think of a bicycle wheel, right? Because it's got these thin metal spokes. But you have to remember that at this time in China, there was no metalworking that, that was that sophisticated to produce a wheel with a hundred spokes. So to have a wheel that big or to have a wheel with that many spokes, the the wheel would have to be huge, right, to get that many spokes into a wheel. Probably large wooden spokes. Just picture it. How big would that wheel have to be? How complex would that wheel have to be? And... The other thing about this is that it's no ordinary wheelwright. A wheelwright is somebody who makes wheels. This wasn't um, your average uh, Chinese wheelwright. This was the first wheelwright, the original, so to speak. So this is significant because we're talking about something that's very old. Talking about a cart that's large complex and very old. You could say a mythic wheel, a mythic cart, and a mythic wheel maker. The image of a wheel is really important in Buddhism from many aspects. It's one of the oldest symbols in Buddhism. 
think they've, uh, one of the earliest uh, Dharma wheels that they found archaeologically was at the um, site of King Ashoka, who was an Indian king, um, one of the first rulers that adhered to Buddhism. And um, the wheel represents many different things, but it, in one way, it, represent, it always has pictured with eight spokes, and those eight represent the Eightfold Noble Path. Some people say it represents eight directions, north, south, east, west, northwest, southwest, east, you know, da, 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 da. It's also said that when the Buddha began teaching, what he did was he set into motion the wheel of Dharma, the wheel of the teaching. It also represents the cycle of birth and death, death and rebirth, kind of that cycle we were talking about over the last couple of days. And of course, in classical Buddhism, the idea is to get off the wheel, get off the cycle, not get subject over and over again to the same forces. <clears throat> so according, going back to the koan, we read that what we're talking about is a cart, not just a single wheel. So a cart in ancient China, if you just picture it, had two wheels with an axle that ran between and then a box of some sort that was put on. Sometimes the wheels would, the axle would be attached to the wheels, which would spin. Sometimes the axle would be attached to the cart and the wheels would spin around the axle. But the point is that it's, it's not a toy. A wheel by itself doesn't really do much, right? But a, a wheel, two wheels and an axle does quite, um, has the potential to do quite a bit. I imagine the first person that came up with a wheel, um, you know, I don't know, they, I think people say it's what, probably 3500 BC or so when the wheel was first invented. But to invent the wheel doesn't really do much. You actually have to invent the cart to actually have it function. So you imagine having this great concept of the wheel and then going, well, what good is it? Okay, so it says, so what would you have if you took off the wheels and the axle? In other words, what is a cart without its most important parts? Is it still a cart? So this is a koan, it's not an intellectual puzzle. And in that sense, can you see what Master Getan is asking us? What is he referring to when he refers to this old, ancient, complex cart? Let's use another image. If you have a tree and you take away the leaves, and you take away the branches and you strip the roots, is it still a tree? If you broke it down, 
even further to the bark. You know, the softwood, the hard, the heartwood. Is it a tree? What about if you went further down into the 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 components like the cellulose? And remember biology class. It's cellulose and uh, all the, well, can't really think of anything else, but what if you go deeper than that? What is cellulose composed of? Glucose? And the molecules, the, the atoms of hydrogen, Oxygen, carbon. As we drill down and we get smaller and smaller, cells consist of molecules, consist of atoms, atoms consist of electrons, electrons consist of uh, quarks and bosons. And all these other mysterious particles that really, when you get down to that level, we're not even sure if they exist or not in the, in the classic sense, right? Are they there or not? What else could this card be? What else could this card be representing? The Buddha taught that the self, as solid as it might feel, is a mirage. He, he broke down, in classic Buddhism, there's the breaking down of the self into the skandhas, feeling, form, thought, choice, Consciousness as these components or heaps, uh, bundles that the Buddha said make up the self. So when you begin to take it apart, what do you find at the core? Doesn't that all that throw into question really who we are? If you start taking your parts of yourself away, when do you stop being yourself? At what point? So this kind of questioning is, is an important part of practice. But the question becomes, what good is this kind of thinking? What, what, what's, what's it there for? In one way, it can help us question our assumptions about the nature of things. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as unchangeable, fixed? But another level, to take things apart, isn't that what we do all the time anyway? Take things apart in our minds, dissect, categorize,
Don't we do that with our jobs, our friends, our loved ones, our personality? We have an idea in our heads about if if I only understood the parts, then I would understand the whole thing. We all know people, perhaps we're one of them, that get so involved in all kinds of things, all kinds of um, pursuits, self-improvement, going to symposiums and workshops. I think of of, um, people that go to sort of communication workshops, for example, We can go to so many communication workshops and we begin to learn how to communicate, but we can get so wrapped up with the model that we actually forget what it is that's the message. In other words, we mistake the model itself for the message. When the Buddha was alive, he got all kinds of questions about all kinds of things. He got questions about rebirth. Um, He got questions about karma, past lives, all this kind of stuff. And about gods. You know, is there a god? But his basic response was, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. So, so the point is, so many of us follow all kinds of systems of thought in order to try to get to the answer, but we're asking the wrong questions. We get into all kinds of things. Chakras and power animals and enneagrams and, I don't know, you name it. It's nothing, there's nothing wrong with these. But the difficulty is that we can get so enamored with these things that we forget what's most important. They're kind of like become distractions. And this is true in Zen as well. Um, Back in Japan, uh, at the turn of the century, there was um, a number of teachers that looked at what was happening to Zen in Japan and noticed how it was becoming so um, preoccupied with the form, like the bowing, the ceremonies, the how you fold your robes correctly, and the hierarchy. Uh, became, it became just, you know, like this um, empty kind of thing. And so a number of teachers really tried to revitalize it. And yet, most of the hierarchy wasn't interested in changing it at all. They just wanted to keep doing these sort of empty rituals and regulations and things. Why? We get so enamored with the parts, we forget the whole. So there, of course, are times where it's really beneficial to take things apart and understand them. 
I remember when I first started learning carpentry, um, I was learning to hang doors. And you have to understand the anatomy of a door in order to really get one to hang properly. It's actually much more complex than you might think. Most of us take it for granted. We just walk in and shut the door. But have you ever had a door that swings open by itself? Or one that doesn't latch properly, right? And it becomes just frustrating. So in order to fix that, or to hang a door correctly to begin with, you have to understand the hinges, the swing, the latch, the jam, the stops. You have to really know it all in all its parts, through and through, to get a door to work right. But then when, once um, I was in that kind of learning process, I noticed what would happen. Whenever I went to, say, to a friend's house or into a new building, <laughs> all I'd look at is the damn doors, right? taking them apart in my mind, looking, oh, look at that. <laughs> and it's true also when I began learning psychotherapy as a therapist, uh, the models and the theories and blah, blah, blah. And I, I remember meeting new people and you just begin to take people apart. Oh, I know what's going on with you, right? I see what your difficulties are. and So you start dissecting people. We all do that. We all dissect, taking ourselves apart, taking others apart, taking the world apart. And even in practice, it can be helpful to do this. It can be helpful to, to learn about ourself. Learn what we struggle with. Learn how the mind works. This is a lot of what Zen practice teaches us in the beginning. How you know, we indulge in certain habits and how our mind goes to certain thought processes and feelings and why that gets blocked and, you know all these kind of different areas of the mind, it's very helpful to understand that. And yet at some point, does that really help to keep going back over that territory over and over again? At some point in Zen practice, the point is to drop all of that, to stop the analyzing just to become our practice. If we really want peace in our life, we have to stop taking things apart. And so when Master Gitan asks us to take apart the cart, he's really pointing out what we do all the time. Taking apart our practice, taking apart others, taking apart ourself. So how do you stop taking apart things? How do, you, how do you take away taking apart? Or take away taking away? 
this cart of ours is large and complex. Each wheel has a hundred spokes. They're large wheels. Complex. Our cart can be clumsy. We can be unskillful with our cart. If we're not careful, we accidentally run our cart into somebody else's cart. And then if we're even more unskillful, sometimes the wheels of our cart get jammed in with the wheels of somebody else's cart. And we can't get them apart. This is the the cart of self. So Master Gitan, again, he asks us, what would it be if you took your cart apart? What would you be if you weren't there to get in your own way? How would your life function if you stopped dragging around this heavy cart? You'd think, you might be thinking, well, that'd be nice. (laughs) Be free of this cart. I once saw a guy in Washington, D.C., and he was, um, it was early in the morning, and he was uh, pushing a hot dog cart up a hill, getting ready. You know, he was a hot dog vendor, and he was pushing this heavy hot dog cart up a hill. And I, I asked him, do you need a hand? That cart looks heavy. Do you need a hand? He said, no, I got it. Yeah, smile on his face. Genuine smile on his face. It wasn't a problem for him. It was heavy, but that's the way he made a living. That's just what he did. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't cursing the cart. Damn cart. <laughs> Buddhist practice isn't just about understanding. It's not just about getting down to the causes of suffering and understanding with our heads what this category of the Buddha said and that and how to practice this little practice and that practice. Really, it's about how well our life is functioning, how well our wheel is turning. So how would you answer Master Getan? How would you answer it? If you took apart the cart, you took away the axle and took away the wheel, what would you be? So Muman's verse goes like this. If you can immediately see through this, your eye will be like a shooting star and your spiritual activity like a flash of lightning. his commentary it says when the wheel spins rapidly even an expert will be lost it moves in all directions above, below north, south, east and west when I was a kid we used to have um, bicycle parades 
uh, every summer, like where uh, you would, the community association or something, some sort of thing, they would, or, you know, every kid was tasked with decorating their bicycle to the nth degree, so it was, you know, ridiculous. And, uh, and um, I remember getting these glow-in-the-dark spoke uh, things, plastic things that you stick on all your spokes. And at night, you ride your banana seat bicycle. <laughs> but when it's dark and all those things are going, all those individual spokes are lit up, it's just one solid wheel of color. When our lives are functioning smoothly, it's one whole experience. So in that case, when he says um, even an expert would be lost, it means that when our lives are smoothly turning, it's so quick, what could an expert tell you that you don't already know? Yasutoni Hiroshi, a Japanese teacher, said about this. He said that if the Buddha was watching us, he wouldn't understand us at all. He wouldn't understand us at all. Because he wouldn't be analyzing us. You know, he wouldn't be standing back and analyzing us. There would be no separation between him and experience. So in that way, we're free. North, south, east, west. Our lives just go where they need to go. So how, going back to the question, how do you demonstrate this oneness when your life is spinning in one piece? How do you demonstrate that? This is what Zen demands of us. It's not just an intellectual thing. But how do you show it? How do you show this smooth turning? How does your heart function as a whole? 